0: good to be here. My name is Esther and I'm always so glad to get to share with you guys from the word. So our eighth grader is getting ready to take a big school field trip to Washington DC and on the way they're going to stop by a place in Pennsylvania. A place where in 1863 more than 50,000 Union and Confederate soldiers died in what would be the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. In his famous Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln stood there and called it hallowed ground. He said, the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it. That ground became so set apart that exactly 160 years later, our eighth grader is flying to see it. Not because of anything inherently remarkable about its soil or landscape, but because of what happened in that place. Today, we're going to read about another piece of hallowed ground near another battlefield. We're in the last week of a series entitled All Things New, in which we've been looking at the beginning of the book of Joshua to see what God has to show us about facing new things. And so far, it kind of seems like God's got it wrapped up. They've crossed the Jordan River. They've looked back on the past through a a cairn of memorial stones. They've renewed the covenant for the future through circumcision. They've looked back, they've looked forward, but God has one more thing. He wants them to look up. Joshua is going to look up and see a commander. This commander is going to declare that the place he stands on is hallowed ground. He's going to teach us something about holiness. That's what we're going to look at today. First, what is holiness like how do we define it next we'll ask how do we respond to god's holiness our passage for today is beautifully brief only three verses it's found in joshua chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. let's read it together when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So it's the eve of the battle of Jericho. The inhabitants of the city have already barricaded themselves behind the city walls. The Israelites are preparing to attack the very next day, but for now, Joshua is alone near the city. He looks up and sees something surprising, a man standing with his sword drawn. Now, the sword was the weapon of the military elite, so this man is no common soldier, and his weapon is drawn in readiness for combat, even though there's no one else around and the battle hasn't started yet. And we have to give Joshua credit for doing something rather bold and courageous, He goes right up to this man and issues what is basically a challenge. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now notice Joshua doesn't ask an open-ended question like, who are you, or declare yourself. He asks, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or not? He frames the situation in terms of his immediate circumstances and concerns, in terms of his own categories and agendas. And that's how many of us approach the new year, isn't it? We think in terms of our goals and categories, and when we encounter something new or unknown, what we want to know is, are you going to be on my side? Is this thing going to work for my advantage? Is this person going to agree with what I believe? Is this going to fit in with how I think or what I want or feel? Reading on in Joshua chapter 5, verse 14. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Who is this commander? We know he's not just an angel or any other created being because Joshua worships him and he accepts Joshua's worship. Most commentators agree that this commander is divine. He is a manifestation of God. Now, the beauty of being in the book of Joshua for the past few weeks is that we have a sense of why God's response here is so shocking. All along, whenever Joshua is afraid, God has said, what? I'm for you. I'm with you. I'll drive out the Canaanites for you. It would have been very easy for Joshua to start thinking in terms of them and us, to expect God to respond here, of course, I'm fighting on your behalf. But in a remarkable non-sequitur, when Joshua asks, are you for or against us? God answers, no. I am not here for the Israelites on your terms, and I am not unreservedly against the Canaanites. I don't fight exclusively for you, nor do I fight exclusively against them. I am above, I am outside of your categories, terms, perspectives, and plans. The question is not whether I am for or against you. The question is whether you are for or against me. The question is not whether I am for or against you. The question is whether you are for or against me. See, we all initially come to God like Joshua. I have an agenda this year. Will you help me with it? We all initially come to God on our terms. We want him to help us feel a certain way, get through something, give us something, fit in with how we see things. But as long as that stays the central thing for us, we don't know who we're talking to. Because God is holy. That's the main thing God reveals about himself here. He says the same words he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I have come, the place you are standing on is holy. When we want to emphasize something in English, uh, we use italics or bold. Oh, it's pouring out there. We're so safe and dry in here. (laughs) And you guys too out there, I think. Uh, When we want to emphasize something in English, right, we use italics or bold. We might underline something or stick on an exclamation point. But in biblical Hebrew and Greek, there is no punctuation, so words were emphasized through repetition. And repeating a word three times was the highest form of emphasis. Do you know in the Bible there's only one attribute of God that is ever repeated three times? That's interesting, right? Like we don't read that God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy or wrath, 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 we read that God is holy, holy, holy. Understanding God's holiness is the only way we'll rightly see ourselves and our new year. So that's our first question for today. What is holiness? What does it mean? We tend to think of holiness as purity, particularly moral purity or ethical perfection. I think many of us, me included, have a bad reaction to the word because we've seen it wielded as a behavioral list of do's and don'ts. But God's holiness is not primarily about moral perfection. The word holy in Hebrew kind of sounds like what it means. The word is kadosh, and it means to cut off or separate. When applied to God, it means a cut above the rest, not just separate, but transcendent beyond the usual limits. The primary meaning of holiness is that God is transcendentally separate. He is not only separate, he is separate in a way that is so far above and beyond us that he stands completely apart. See, God being holy is not just another on his list of attributes, like, oh, God is loving, just, merciful, wise, and holy. God is holy in a way that applies to all his attributes. His love is a holy love. It goes far beyond any other love that we could imagine or long for. God's justice is a holy justice. It exists in a perfection and one day a completion that is far beyond all that we could hope for in this messed up and broken world. God's mercy is a holy mercy. His compassion and forgiveness moves him far beyond what we deserve. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom, far beyond what we could figure out or know, and so on. See, this changes everything. If we understood not just God's love, but the holiness of God's love, we would feel so treasured and secure. If we understood not just God's justice, but the holiness of God's justice, we would maybe find hope or zeal. If we understood not just God's mercy, but the holiness of God's mercy, we would extend such mercy to others. And if we understood not just God's wisdom, but the holiness of God's wisdom, we would cease to be anxious, and so on. In iClinic, we have a system for quantifying low vision, You might be familiar with the letter chart, and now all of you are tempted to check your vision. I know, like, can I see the smallest line? We put this up in our house, actually, so we could uh, periodically check our kids until I realized they had memorized all the letters. (laughs) No wonder they always had perfect vision. But when you stop being able to see the big E, we see if you can count fingers at different distances. And after that, if you can see hand motion. And finally, whether you can see light. We shine a flashlight directly on um, someone's eye and say, hey, can you tell when I'm showing you the light or taking it away? And if they can't, we write down NLP or no light perception. In this way, we try to define and quantify the perception of light. But really, light is not just another thing on the list of things we see. Light is what allows us to see everything else rightly. Sometimes I imagine trying to describe to someone with no light perception what light is. Like, Say they ask you, can you look at the sun and tell me what it looks like? We'd have to say, well, one can't look directly at the sun without being blinded, but we know it exists because through, it, through its light we see everything else. Say they ask you, can you touch the sun and tell me what it feels like? We have to say one can't approach the sun without dying from exposure to its heat and radiation, but we know it exists because we experience its warmth. God's holiness is like that. It's what allows us to see all of God's attributes as they really are, and it's something that we ultimately comprehend through experience. If you look at people and angels in the Bible who encounter God's holiness, they don't sit down and write an essay. They don't compose moral checklists and start categorizing people by their behavior. They don't get puffed up with pride. In fact, just the opposite They are undone. They cover their eyes. You see them like Joshua just fall to the ground. All of their self-orientation falls away in the presence of a being so far beyond them. That's why the second question Joshua asks here is so different from the first one. His first question sought to define God on his terms. His second question places himself entirely on God's terms. He asks, What does my Lord say to his servant? God, what do you want me to do? That's our second question for today. How do we respond to God's holiness? We see here that God asks Joshua to respond in two ways. First, God asks Joshua to recognize that the ground he stands on is holy. In other words, God is not only himself holy, but he makes things holy, not in the sense that they have the same degree of holiness that he does, but in the sense that they reflect his holiness. In fact, here is a list of some of the things that the Bible calls holy. Some of these are objects like a coat or oil. Some are concepts like a covenant. Some are events in time like a jubilee. None of these things are holy because of any intrinsic quality that they have. The composition of the dirt Joshua was standing on was probably the same as the dirt a few rocks over. Holiness happens because of the extrinsic presence and work of God. Anything can be made holy in the sense that it is separated unto God to reflect his character and purposes. In fact, this is not on the list, but maybe the most important thing God sanctifies is us. Holiness is our primary calling as believers. Leviticus and 1 Peter both quote God as saying, Be holy because I am holy. One way to visualize this is the fact that the Exodus came before the law. So God wasn't like, Here's a list of rules, and if you keep them, I'll rescue you from Egypt. No, the rescue was unconditional. It didn't depend on anything they did or didn't do. But the law also came after the Exodus. God wasn't like, okay, i rescued you, now go do whatever. He saved them to give them the law. They weren't redeemed by observing the law, but so that they might observe it so that they might become a people who reflect God's holiness in how they live. How does this happen? How does God make us holy? So some of you may have heard me share about our dog a few weeks back. What I failed to mention is that not everyone in our family is a dog person. We actually split pretty evenly into team dog and team cat, three and three, which is probably some kind of personality assessment. But anyway, it was brought to my attention that it's only fair that I also show a photo of our cat. So here she is when we first got her as a kitten. And yes, the cuteness is unbearable. Anyone who was asleep is now awake, and anyone who was awake is now wondering how Esther's gonna link this to holiness. (laughs) But when we bought her, we loved her exactly as she was, right? No matter what she did or how she would turn out. But we also knew she wasn't supposed to stay the way she was. Besides the usual growth in size, she's a breed that acquires coloring progressively. So this is what she looked like five months later, another nine months after that, and how she looks today. And if you're noticing that she has not moved from the same couch cushion in all that time, it's because she's really that sedentary. Now the holiness of God cannot be compared with a cat, okay, whatever team cat has to say. It's obvious now which team I'm on. But God does make us holy in a similar way. We have what can be called positional holiness, So when we are saved by Jesus, God sees us as holy forever. Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified, past tense, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I think a lot of us might subconsciously think, okay, Jesus saved me, so now I have a blank slate, but it's up to me to keep it up. But our salvation is not something we ever have to re-earn or renew. It doesn't expire like a library book. Our positional holiness is without condition and without change. Just like we love our cat unconditionally and her position on the couch never changed. But it was precisely because of that love that we desired our cat to change into who she was meant to be. God also, at the time of our salvation, grants us what can be called progressive holiness. So when Jesus saves us, he frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power and gives us the Holy Spirit to teach and empower us to become more holy. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, make every effort to be holy, present tense. This includes external behavior, to be sure, but is also a matter of our inward motivations and desires. Progressive holiness is an ongoing process. Someone once described it like walking a yo-yo up the stairs. There are a lot of ups and downs, but ultimate progress nonetheless. The first way God asks Joshua to respond is to recognize that God makes things holy. He makes us holy by giving us positional holiness in Christ and also by allowing us to grow in the progressive holiness to which we are called. The second way God asks Joshua to respond is to take off his shoe. So back then, shoes symbolize a few things. They stood for all that was unholy or unclean. The Levitical priests would take off their shoes before touching holy items in the tabernacle or when going into the inner sanctuary. Shoes symbolized authority and military power. Like Victors would put their feet on those they defeated, as seen on the flag of my home state, Virginia. (laughs) Shoes stood for ownership and possession. A purchase became legal when the seller took off his shoe and gave it to the buyer. By taking off his shoe, Joshua is laying aside all that is unclean in acknowledgement of God's presence. But he is also laying aside his own authority and ownership. He is yielding all personal claims to his mission, giving up his right to possess the promised land on his terms, expressing his willingness to follow and obey God whatever it may look like. It was the same with Moses, both of them at the beginning of their missions, taking off their shoes in the presence of a holy God. So here's the question to take with you today. What's your shoe to take off? How can you mark this year as holy ground? Think right now about some concern that you have this year. What would it look like to bring the reality of God's holiness into that? His holy love, holy justice, holy sovereignty, his holy presence. Imagine God coming into that place in your life and saying, now I have come. This is holy ground because I am here in it. What would it look like for you to respond How would it change the kind of questions you've been asking? How would it change your perspective? Would it give you a sense of hope? Is there something you would lay aside or yield? How can you mark this year as holy ground? Last week, John put up this slide pointing out that the events in Moses' life, the first Passover in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the wilderness, are playing out in Joshua's life in backwards order, leaving the wilderness to cross the Jordan River and eat the first Passover in the Promised Land. Well, we can add one more layer today, which bookends the whole thing, a barefoot encounter with the divine, Joshua ending right where Moses began. But if you compare these two experiences, it's interesting that God doesn't come to Joshua in a plant like he did for Moses in a bush. He doesn't come in cloud or fire as he did in the wilderness. He comes as a commander. Joshua himself is a military commander, and that's the form God takes, one that is like him yet far beyond him. Many think this commander is actually Jesus himself. Jesus saying, now I have come. Jesus would come again in human form as one like us, yet far beyond us, God and man, not to draw a sword, but to give up his life for us on the cross. Yet we're told in Revelation 19 that one day, all of us will see him as Joshua did, when he returns as a commander with the sword. On that day, his name will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Commander of Commanders. And the book of Revelation ends with these words, Come, Lord Jesus. As we end this series, may that be our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into our new year. May every step we take this year be a step onto holy ground as we live into the reality of God's holy presence. Let's pray. Jesus, as we sing this morning and as you taught your followers to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, this is the reality of the heavenly realms right now, that you are holy, and that one day our experience of your holiness will be all that we have ever longed for, all that we were created for. I pray that you would help each one of us here and together as a community to understand and to experience your holiness in a way that changes us. Help us to carry these ideas into our lives this week, and would you show us what it means for us right now? In Jesus' name we pray.